0: Hello pals. how are you doing? I'm your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I've interrupted my own break to deliver a bonus episode of sorts. It was recorded over Zoom last week and I didn't want to hold on to it for a new season. Uh, it was a really mind-expanding conversation, if that's not too self-important to say, and I wanted to share it ASAP. It's with the award-winning non-fiction filmmaker and geographer Brett Storey, who is based in Toronto. Um, I became aware of her work maybe last year when I saw The Hottest August at CPH Docs, a documentary festival in Copenhagen, and I was really wowed by it. And then I saw Brett speak at Sheffield DocFest. And again, found her to be a very interesting and illuminating figure in the nonfiction scene. And yeah, with the Zoom and these lockdown podcasts, I figured why not reach out and see if she would talk to me about her career. Um, and she very kindly agreed. Her 2016 feature documentary The Prison in 12 Landscapes was awarded the Special Jury Prize at the Hot Docs uh, International Documentary Festival and was a nominee for Best Feature Documentary at the Canadian Screen Awards. Her follow-up film The Hottest August was released in 2019 and is screened worldwide and is considered to be one of the best films of the year according to places like Variety, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Sight & Sound and IndieWire. Brett holds a PhD in geography from the University of Toronto and is currently an assistant professor in the School of Image Arts at Ryerson University. She is the author of the book Prison Land, Mapping Carceral Power Across Neoliberal America and co editor of the forthcoming volume Infrastructures of Citizenship. Brett was a twenty sixteen Sundance Institute Art of Nonfiction Fellow and a twenty eighteen Guggenheim Fellow in Film and Video. Her interests across the field of documentary and critical theory are expansive and include experimental cinema and essay films, politics and aesthetics, racial capitalism, and Marxist political economy and visual geography. We touch on some, if not all, of those ideas. We also talk about how academia facilitated her filmmaking interests, how she formulates ideas and then tethers that to form, what production looks like and how she funds her films... Um, It's a really far-reaching and and provoking conversation, which is exactly what Brett's films feel like to me. So it was a joy to connect those dots uh, in that sense. And as always, I hope you get something out of it. I'll be back later in the year with season three. Uh, For now, this is episode 63 of the Best Girl Grip podcast. (laughs) like to start is sort of your your path into your career and where you studied and Mm -hmm. I know that you uh you kind of followed an academic path and you had an MA and a PhD um and I'm wondering what your motivation was in pursuing academia in general um, and why those subjects that you selected to study
1: Sure, yeah, my my um, path to making films is definitely circuitous, but I feel like that about my path to doing everything that I've done. Um, and so maybe it's just ultimately that I'm quite indecisive or or also that I have you know some competing inclinations that lead me places that I'm dissatisfied with in aggregate. but I have yeah, I feel like I've pursued film kind of parallel to pursuing an academic, career and have had kind of love affairs with both realms and also uh, a lot of unease. My I did my undergraduate degree in um, at McGill in Montreal, okay. and I studied political science and English literature and was, you know, have always been sort of artistically minded, but also intellectually minded. Like I, I love books, I read more than I do anything else. And so even while I, you know, ha- painted or played with With photography in a kind of amateur way, I had never really considered pursuing art as a career. I didn't even really understand that that was a concept. I just knew that for my own happiness, I enjoyed creative pursuits. But while I was doing my undergraduate degree, I I fell into some radio journalism and quite quickly on started making long form radio documentaries and just really became interested in kind of sonic texture and, you know, pursuing and investigating ideas, critical ideas, the world around me through kind of long form, the long form edit. Um, and because I'd already been interested in, in photography and considered myself very visual and my sort of way of being in the world, it, I think it, I mean, it really just occurred to me at some point, I don't even remember why, maybe I just came away from seeing a film somewhere and was like, wait people make documentary films, people make cinematic nonfiction, maybe that's exactly what I should do. You know, I'd already been making these these long radio documentaries. And so it was, it was shortly, actually, it was during my undergraduate degree that I started trying to figure out what that meant. And, you know, I was terribly naive, probably for the for the better. I, I took some workshops and editing. I convinced a roommate to... Um, go have these with me on a you know thousand dollar camcorder. I bought myself a Super 8 camera. And decided to make a, a film, not even really knowing what that meant, but decided that I, I wanted to make a film about um, the gentrification of my neighborhood. And I ended up making, you know, something that I wouldn't even call my first film because it never really saw the light of day. I mean, I showed it to friends, but it was really a kind of opportunity for me to just play with a form and decide, you know, how I felt about it. And without, again, knowing what it would mean to try and have a film, a career in film, I just fell in love with the activity of doing. And for me, that sort of led my entire career like what is it that i how is it that i enjoy spending time even when i'm not sure what that's going to (laughs) mean what the end game of that is but yeah i really loved i really loved interviewing people i really loved composing images i really loved thinking about sonic effect and texture and music and how what it does to images when married together but I also was very, and am still quite, as I said, intellectually minded, I'm interested in ideas, I'm interested in a critical examination of the world, and I've always found study a kind of form of liberation that's been good for me in terms of understanding my place in the world and feeling activated by it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I had, I was sort of of two minds at this point, and was still thinking I wanted to be a filmmaker, but you know, still didn't have any guidance about what that meant and decided in the meantime to do a a master's degree. I actually moved to England and did a master's degree at Oxford in this migration studies department and came home and decided, okay, academia is not for me. I want to be a filmmaker. And it was only about five years later after I'd made really what I think of as my first feature length film that I realized, okay, I do want to be a filmmaker, but it's really hard. And I'm not sure that the hustle and the fundraising are as enjoyable to me or something I'm as inclined towards as the actual craft of making. So I decided, yeah, I decided the way I put it is to hide out in a PhD program. I was thinking a lot about what were the conditions that I wanted and needed in order to pursue the kinds of films I wanted to make. And for me, I decided, you know, I wanted an intellectual environment that a, that a place, especially a funded place where I could just think and read would Provision me with a kind of necessary space to pursue my next film project, and so I, I thought of the PhD not as a as an academic pursuit so much as a construction of a kind of good studio space from which to make a film. And I did; I made a film as part of my PhD,
0: mm, almost like an incubator for your ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's in some ways just stealing time back, right? I mean, <laughs> for most of us, we have to work. And I, I couldn't kind of opt out of the job market. I had to pay my rent. And I was awarded a full scholarship to do a PhD. And I thought, okay, this is a way for me to, to kind of steal back some time from the nine to five job schedule, which wouldn't have left much time for filmmaking. And I thought, oh, I'll just do a PhD. And then kind of like, even, even if I have to, you know, write essays or do my coursework, it would be a way to kind of steal some time back for the pursuit of, of cinematic work.
0: And I'm interested in a couple of things you said there. I mean, first, that you got your start in sort of radio journalism, and that something that appeals to you is interviewing and investigating. And and given that print journalism and radio journalism can do both of those things, I'm wondering why filmmaking um, became the thing that you wanted to pursue, and also how you taught yourself to tell stories visually?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that my relationship to journalism is s- suffers in similar ways to my, my relationship to academia. So I, as I said, I, I am very interested in kind of an investigative and a critical way of being in the world. I, I, I feel like all of my films are motivated by questions that I can't figure out without employing, you know, a set of tools but I feel like as forms, they're very straight. They're just, you know, we, we know, I, I, you know I, I write magazine articles and news articles sometimes, and there's a sort of formula to them that's very much a, about digging up, researching, and imparting information. And that's fine if I want to live in a world in which there are journalists who are paid to dig up and disseminate information. But I feel like information is just one piece of a sort of ways of kind of critically Challenging how the how the world appears to us and how we might inhabit it differently. Mm. And what I love about film is that it's an art form. You know, it's not just another way to do journalism. For me, especially nonfiction cinema is a way to work with the language, the 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 language of the senses to kind of uh, uh, explore different registers in which we ever know. Um, and might know differently. So I think of of cinema, not just, yeah, not just in in, in my own films, not just as a a way of digging up a bunch of information that that then gets told to an audience, but rather as an endeavor in exploring feelings and thoughts and contradictions and complexities that sometimes can't even be articulated in words. And I find, you know, this was my other problem with journalism is I just think language is itself Hmm. inadequate. Um, and I wanted to work with a medium that had a, a few different languages. I mean, I think of, I think of film not just as, as moving images, but as, as moving sounds, as sounds arranged in a, uh, in a sequence that we experience through time. And I feel like the sound does a lot of work. In our own experiences of a film and creating atmosphere and creating mood and destabling our ideas of what an image means. And I feel like that's a really exciting way to, to do the work of investigating the world we live in.
0: Absolutely. And I'm wondering post PhD, how you segued into filmmaking full time, and, and both how you came to that decision, and how you funded that decision?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even say that I, <laughs> that I do filmmaking full time. I, I I recently started a job, a position at a university, so I now teach. um, And really, that's my source of income. Mm. And I feel like, actually, I'm glad you asked this question, because I don't feel like we talk about it enough. It is terribly difficult to fund films, but also make a living and fund our our lives, pay our rent while pursuing projects. And it's often a mystery to me how people work on on projects, especially ones that take years and years to make. You know, do they have budgets that, that allow them to pay themselves? Do they make commercials in their spare time? What is the sort of mechanism that makes this possible? So for me, you know, I, I I did this PhD in a geography department, which is a um, it's a social science and a rigorous one, and there's there wasn't a lot of precedents for making um, cinematic work. So I I even though I was making a film while I did my PhD, I wasn't allowed to submit that film. I had to write a whole dissertation, but I did make this film that was a, a real sort of I mean to use a cliche a labor of love. I considered it a, a sort of artful abolition film Mm. um highly formalist um in its conceit but informed by the rigorous research i was doing which is often like really kind of methodologically sound, like like actual field work, um, all about the political economy and dis, dis diverse geographies of the U.S. prison system. So this film is a film called The Prison in 12 Landscapes, and it came out shortly after I finished my PhD. So I did my PhD, and then I kind of followed a kind of path that many academics do, which is I, I got a postdoc, which is another sort of two-year funded thing you can get to to continue doing your academic work but in the meantime i finished this film and despite all of the obstacles that i've had in making it it started to actually play festivals and, and critics picked it up and people actually saw it and and yeah i feel like that even though it was my second film it was really the film that i that Got It got a lot more traction than my first film, and as a result, a few opportunities came my way. Most notably, I was awarded a really, really special fellowship, a kind of new fellowship started by the Sundance Documentary Institute called the Art of Nonfiction Fellowship, and this is a fellowship that um, was designed by a few visionaries, John Cardolino and Tabitha Jackson at the Sundance Institute, as a way to support not just particular films, but artists who were trying to use the language and form of nonfiction artistically and, and courageously and in new, bold ways. And, and so the, the fellowship was support, came in the form of support for uh, a year. And that support included gatherings in which we got to share ideas and develop new skills and develop our projects, but also some funding so we could you know, we could either put them into our projects or pay the rent or whatever else. And so that for me was really the beginning of feeling like I had some semblance of a of a career, whatever that means (laughs) in documentary. But I wouldn't say that that means that things have been, you know, stable since. I think think for many of the people that I know, myself included, working in this field means working project to project. Mm. And so, you know, during this time I started to pursue my next film, but I I worked part time. I finished my postdoc and I applied for academic jobs. And now I think of my academic job as really the kind of basis from which I can continue to make the kinds of films that I want to make, regardless of whether or not they're commercially viable or considered commercially viable.
0: And I'm wondering. I mean, I. It's worth pointing out that um, the prison in twelve landscapes is on Vimeo, and I saw it there and um, was really taken with it. Particularly, I think, with the Thank revived you. conversations that are happening right now around abolition and the carceral system. And I'm wondering. You know, it's, it's it's very unique in in the way you kind of you feel your way through it. I think mm. um, both as a documentary filmmaker, but as a as an audience member. And I'm wondering how you found that that voice and that aesthetic, and whether that's something that you always had or something that you've honed over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, probably a little bit of both. You know, to explain the conceit of the film a bit more, the film takes the form, it's called The Prison in 12 Landscapes, and it takes the form of 12 vignettes structured as a kind of journey across really different places around the United States. And in none of these places do you see an actual penitentiary. The, The film does not take place inside or outside a prison and instead, in its in its very form, suggest that we don't need to look at the penitentiary in order to find out and figure out how the prison system is deeply embedded in all aspects of modern life. And some of those ways are really concrete. You know, I have a scene that takes place in, in Appalachia where there's been a decline in the coal industry for the past, you know three or four or five decades and the area is witnessing a boom in, in prison construction as prisons are built literally on top of closed down coal mines and ex coal miners are retraining as prison guards. So so the point of the film is really conceptual. It's to it's to suggest that we can think differently about the role of prisons in American life, if we look in, a, in some unusual and unexpected places, and once we see how prisons operate in those places, for instance, in Appalachia, as a, as a job creation mechanism, then we might start asking critical questions, you know, different kinds of questions than we normally get asked. We normally get asked, you know, is this person wrongfully committed or, or justly committed? Is this punishment too much or too little? And I think, I think that that really traps us in thinking, especially in America, but in really across the West, in this idea that prisons are a natural and inevitable phenomenon, we need them in order to save, stay safe. So, yeah, I, I really, I mean, I, all I can say is that I try and make films that are like the films that I like to watch, and for me... I I love a a film to operate in the way a really good book operates, which is to expand my capacity to think and to live much longer than it's 90 minutes or a hundred minutes I've spent watching it. And and so my favorite films are really open, even oblique kind of like puzzles that you have to figure out you're Mm -hmm. in them, you're engrossed, you're feeling things, you're having experiences while you're watching those scenes. But by the end of the film, you don't feel like you've just been handed a bunch of facts that you now have either digested or slept through. Instead, you have you have some work to do, mm-hmm. and hopefully, you're you've sat through that film with some friends, and you can go out for dinner or for drinks afterwards, and 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 talk late into the night about them. So, I, I deliberately make films that uh, have been called, you know, conceptual, oblique, complex, um, because I I feel like that's part of the exciting thing of how a a film can live in our brain and also live outside of its own duration.
0: Yeah completely and when you select a topic as sort of wide-ranging and and knotty as the carceral system and and your follow-up film The Hottest August deals with like climate anxiety how do you go about defining the parameters and, and creating a structure that you can tether your subject to in order to explore it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that for me is sort of the, um, the benefits of a kind of formal apparatus. I think that my films tend to be very, and I say very, and really I mean too <laughs> ambitious. I don't like binding um, the possibilities of what a film is going to be about. So my my the films that I find myself disliking the most are the films that feel so reduced to their own logline mm-hmm. that they're nothing but that logline. So you know it's exactly that and nothing else and i want to make a film i want to make films that are so much more infinitely more and they're also expanded dependent on who's watching them so my favorite thing is when i'm at a film screening for one of my films and someone says this is what I thought this was about. This is what I was thinking about. And it in no way resembles what I intended, but is ex- an exciting extension of what the, the film can mean. But as a result, you know, that's, that's a pretty unwieldy way to work. And so I find that formal and aesthetic limits are a useful way to, have have some sense of an architecture so in this in this case in the, in the case of the prison in 12 landscapes that architecture was the idea first of all that we were never going to see a prison in the film that the, the film was going to take a place in a set of of non-prison landscapes and I had a kind of loose idea of how many so I, I called it prison in 12 landscapes because I thought you know 12 might be a good number but mm-hmm. it could could have been a few less could have been a few more And, and I, I had some sense that it was never going to be totally comprehensive and it shouldn't pretend to be like an over arching comprehensive sweep that tells you everything you need to know about the U S prison system, but that it should continue to surprise. So I really wanted to think about the the different landscapes in the films and the different kinds of work that they would do so that you never had this feeling of, Oh, I'm 20 minutes in, I get it already. Mm -hmm. People formerly incarcerated people are all around us. I wanted to really sort of expand how each how each scene did its work. So yeah, I mean then then the process after that is just is really iterative. I tend to take a long time in the edit room and shorter time in the during the production phase, partially because I also work with lower budgets um, and because I have other obligations. I'm usually working or doing something else at the same time. So um, I keep my, my shooting ratios low just because the conditions are necessary for that and also because production is so so challenging and I never want to get to the point where I'm just so exhausted and I'm so sick of filming that I've lost all taste for my own film. Um, but as a result, I, I often create work that certainly doesn't have any kind of script for how it's going to be constructed. And so I work with editors and I, I say, these are... These are all the ideas that I ha- that are going on. These are all the things that happened. This is the footage that we have. But what that what that means for what this film is going to be is kind of up to us now. So with the hottest August, the 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 kind of formal limits were that that film. I decided. I mean, almost arbitrarily, but also as part of the kind of the, the experimental conceit of the film. The idea was that the film was going to be was going to be filmed entirely over the course of. One month in one city, and that we would shoot every single day, give or take one, one or two days, and then that footage would constitute a kind of archive of the present. Mm -hmm. And we did just that. We shot every day, mostly every day, over the course of August 2017. And then we, my editor and I, Nels Bangert,er we we spent almost a year, eleven months, in the edit room because actually, what a month of footage can. Can yield in terms of in terms of a cinematic experience is uh, is infinite so we really had to had to figure out how to create a structure out of all that footage
0: um, and that seems like a good time to sort of dive into the production process and particularly with nonfiction filmmaking where there's an apparent thoughtfulness to what's happening on screen, but also an effortlessness in that you kind of just shacked up and you happen to be talking to this person. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk me through, A, how you decide, you know, where you're going to put the camera, who you're going to talk to, how long you're going to film for. Because you could be standing, you know, in a place for an hour and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And then literally just as soon as you decide to move on, the exciting thing happens.
1: And that always happens does happen um I mean there's a kind of radical patience that I I have to learn every time I make a film precisely because I don't I not only don't but I I refuse to to work with a kind of script model or shot list model like I really I I I sort of work with I've done a set of research I've got some ideas about what I might find but I feel like I, for the inquiry to actually feel genuine and curious and interesting, I need to be open to surprise. I need to not know what I'm going to find. I I don't want to overdetermine what I'm going to find. Because I feel like that, in at least the works that I make, would end up ringing flat for the audience as well. Mm -hmm. So in the case of The Hottest August, you know, this is a film, I would often describe it to people as a film composed of, of sort of conversations with strangers, and then observations from intimate and public events, but a film also composed of a series, series of digressions. So the whole point was that even though I was describing that film as a film about climate change, it was not going to feel like a film about climate change, because it's less about the is or the what of climate change and more about the inhabiting of a world in which the future itself is in crisis Mm -hmm. and what that feels like and how people handle that and what they do with that in their brains and how we cope with that. And I don't, I didn't know, you know, if I was making a film that's like about the science of climate change, I could find a series of experts and they could tell us about, you know, rainfall and hurricanes and the rest of it, um, fossil fuels. Uh, green energy. But I was not making that kind of film. I was making a film about dread. I was making a film about despair. I was making a film about how we cope with a sense that we don't have power over our own capacity to survive as a species. And in order to investigate that, honestly, I felt like I needed to, we needed to, as a team, be open to people telling us things that we didn't expect them to tell us. And so that's that's pretty hard. I'll admit it's pretty hard to set up as a as a kind of production schedule, and it meant that we would often kind of think kind of at the edges of the of of the film's ideas. So what I mean by that is instead of being like, okay, this is the kind of person that we need to say X on camera, we'd think, okay, what, where in New York are we going to find young people? Um, where in New York are we going to? Where do we see, you know, working class people who don't have access to um, privatized leisure space gather on some of the hottest days in the summer? Where do we see tension arise? And so we would figure out spaces to go to. And then once we were in those spaces, really, really had to do the hard work of practicing patience and observation Mm -hmm. at the same time. Because, you know, it was always a gamble. We could go to a, a spot. It could even just be a street corner and absolutely nothing would happen. But I think part of the pleasure of allowing for that is also realizing that even when nothing is happening, something is always happening. You know, a couple of those scenes came about when we were on our way home after a long day. We would be, you know, the very opening scene of the film is us adjust- adjusting the camera quickly as this guy leans out his window without his shirt on to complain about the state of unions. And we were just on our way to the restaurant after a day of shooting on the beach mm-hmm. and, and it's just it's just an opportunity you have a camera and people want to know what's going on and they engage and i i wanted to construct a kind of working situation for the crew in which we would just be on the ready to notice things happening and speak to people who wanted to speak to us
0: and i'm i'm wondering you know with that How do you know when you've got what you need to tell the story that you had planned on telling? Is that about an instinct that you have or are you editing alongside that so you can see it coming together as you're shooting?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always for me, my works are always experiments. And I I, that's really scary. But I feel like in order to be worth doing, my films have to hold the possibility that they might fail. Mm. Anything that doesn't know it doesn't have the possibility of failing is too safe to be interesting in my opinion. So what that means is that even at the end of shooting, I I know that there's a chance I don't have a film. I felt that more so with the hottest August than I did with the Prison in Twelve Landscapes. In the Prison in Twelve Landscapes, I I mean, I had been working on prison issues for twenty years. It's a there there's a real there was a real sort of a real research process that went into the film and some remarkable things that happened. And there was actually it was my experience in St. Louis talking to people in the um, different communities there that in the moment of being there with them, I I knew not only that I had a film, but I had found the heart of the film, Mm. um, which isn't an experience I always have shooting. And it actually was really useful in the edit room because we had no idea how we were going to structure these 12 landscapes. But I knew that the St. Louis scene was, was the heart of the film and that therefore should come maybe around two thirds of the way through that it was going to be, it was, it, it had some sense of where to put it. With The Hottest August, I didn't know, I certainly didn't know if we had, you know, it, it's a film that's 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 really about ordinary life, the way in which the climate crisis manifests itself it, as everyday anxiety in everyday life. So it's deliberately not constructed out of dramatic moments. And... As a result, it is really hard to know whether the footage is going to be is going to translate in the edit room and therefore on screen in any way that actually makes you feel like you've just seen a film. I felt confident that I had learned a lot and I felt confident that I had had encounters with people and encounters with situations that made me feel things and made me think things and and that had encouraged me to be curious, and that it hurt my brain because they were, they were so rife with contradictions that I had to grapple with. And so my only, you know, I, I could only hope that because I'd had those experiences, that meant that the footage itself could could kind of carry uh, a film in some way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I think that this is one of the great things about and also heartbreaking things about working with a, an editor is you can hand off a bunch of footage and you say, oh, my God, I had this amazing experience. This person was incredible. We really connected. It was so magical. And then that person could look at the footage and say, like, you might have had that experience, but it's not here. <laughs> you didn't capture it. It doesn't mm. translate. I'm sorry. And that's, that's really heartbreaking, right? But it's also it's also fine. Sometimes you're transformed by things that are not translatable mm. on screen,
0: I like what you said there about, you know, making the audience feel like they've seen a film. Um, And that kind of connects with one of my questions I had, which was that you you referred to yourself as a non-fiction filmmaker um, in your Twitter bio. I heard you speaking about the concept um, at Sheffield DocFest. And I'm wondering why that's your preference and what you perceive to be the limits of the term documentary.
1: Yeah, I think that this is... um yeah, it's such it's a really hard question, mm-hmm. because I don't want there to be limits to the term documentary. I'd like to call myself a documentary filmmaker. And I still do. I feel like the films that have inspired me to, to be a filmmaker, I, I call documentaries. Mm-hmm. But I also think we have to be realistic about how these terms come to gain meaning based on what is the kind of dominant thing, dominant kind of work that gets produced under those labels. And I think unfortunately for a whole set of reasons including financial reasons including how broadcasters have changed over the years, we have come to a point where documentary is it's much more conventional than it used to be. I mean, the films of Chris Marker and Frederick Wiseman and Agnes Varda, those are all documentaries, but Mm -hmm. they're much bolder in their form and in their language and aesthetic than the kinds of films that get called documentaries now. And I think there's like a few problems. I mean, some people, when you ask them what a documentary is, they say, oh, it's talking heads, by Mm -hmm. which they mean it's people being sitting down and giving sound bites based on their expertise or based on their relationships or they think, um, you know, documentary is all sort of social advocacy. So here's a film that's meant to tell you that polar bears are, are dying and here are the series of images you're going to see and the, the, like campaign you can, you can join afterwards. And I feel like I, I in, in calling myself a, doc, a nonfiction filmmaker, I, I think I'm trying to, relate myself more to a much more expansive tradition that also includes non cinematic work. I mean, nonfiction literature is an important part of the, the lineage in which I feel like I, I come from. And, and it's also afforded a lot more room to be creative. Like I think of, of the films that I make as, as works of art. I mean, at least I'd, I'd like to, and I feel like for some people, and for the system at large, documentary has become increasingly disassociated from art. I mean, I, I I tell my students, and and my colleagues have certainly heard me say this, but you know, I I've pitched my films at forums in which I get told, "Oh no, that's an art film," as if it's a is if it's a bad thing. Hmm. And I want to say, well, that, isn't that a great thing? I mean, first of all, it's a contradiction. If, if it's a film, it's a piece of art. But also, art is wonderful. Art is magical. Exactly. Yes, I'm making an art film. I'm making an art film about political subjects. I'm making an art film that takes reality as its, as it's material. What do you mean when you want to, when you when you criticize or dismiss the work that I'm doing because it's artistic? And so I feel like, unfortunately, that's what's befallen the category of documentary Um, and I think we should take it back I mean again like I say I think the history of documentary film includes wild works of cinema you know montage films essay films uh, diary films uh, experimental films and it's only within the kind of documentary marketplace that's increasingly taking up a lot of room especially within film festivals that we see documentary become this narrowly defined thing that can have negative or positive connotations depending on on where you're coming from.
0: And and do you find that that those limitations and those categories um, troubles your access to funding? Like, what's your experience of that process been like?
1: Yeah, my I don't find it very easy to find funding. I will um, maybe that's an understatement of the year. <laughs> um, but but that's okay. I mean, I I think that. You know, I, I'm I'm really interested right now. There's a real reckoning going on on all sorts of levels in the documentary field, as there is elsewhere, and some attempt to say, you know, okay, out of the ashes of what's 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 burning right now, we can actually construct something new and liberatory. And um, I think the funding model is certainly broken. I think that we have a funding model um, that's, you know, by definition, risk averse, dominated, used to be dominated by broadcasters, but even the public broadcasters have been having to operate for decades now under the sign of austerity. So they're um, under increased pressure to prove the worth of the works that they commission in algorithmic terms, in terms of metrics of eyeballs, rather Mm than um, in terms of was this a wonderful experience? And, but then, you know, I think also NGOs and that kind of dominance of the the social impact um, model for what documentary should be is similarly really reductive in terms of how films get evaluated. Like, is this film? Is, the, is there a main character? Is that character downtrodden enough? Are they charismatic and downtrodden? Will, is, there a, is the social issue legible enough? I mean, I make films about social issues, as we've just said, and I never, ever, ever get funding from, mm-hmm. from the, the social issue um, funding bodies, which I think of as ironic. They're either concerned entirely with success in terms of mass numbers of eyeballs, or or metrics of social impact and I feel like anything that's trying to be more ambitious or it is immeasurable in some way I mean I can't say you know my my films have a have led to this number of people signing a certain petitions on behalf of on behalf of a particular campaign or, or person and led to these results nor do I want to I don't mm. think that films have that kind of power, but but that's not to discount that they have power at all. I think I think cinema cinema canon should be part of the overall project of enabling us to be critical inhabitants of the of the world. I just don't think that we can we we have the metrics to figure out whether they're successes or failures. Mm. I mean, this is all to say I do think that the funding model is broken. And it's especially, it does a disservice, not just to people who are working in more complex artistic and experimental forms, but I think necessarily, it's also the reason that we see this problem of lack of diversity. And I think that when we do see, you know, diverse representation People who I think that it's really hard for people, for women and people of color especially, to make work that's outside of our our conventional expectations for what documentary is. And I think Mm -hmm. actually it's even harder for them than it is for for those people who've traditionally you know accrued a lot of power within this field. What counts as documentary and expanding the possibilities for funding is also a project in diversifying the field who gets to make work who gets access to the to the platform to to make project and make bold bold work especially
0: and it comes back to the Sundance Institute I guess and supporting the artist as opposed to the project you know that's, that's yeah. where it's going to be most helpful and m- most fruitful
1: Totally. And I think that that needs to include taking on some risk, taking on the risk that and trusting and trusting artists who are asking the right questions as opposed to giving the right answers. Mm-hmm. Trusting artists who are trying to try things precisely because the world needs us to ask harder questions of it and, and to ask questions in different ways rather than provision sort of more of the same and again, the sort of safe bet I've been on these juries and I hear my, my fellow jurists, you know, debate grant proposals and that question of like, how does it end? Or what if that, you know, I don't understand entirely what this means or who's the main character is, it, is its own form of anxiety and this sense that, that like we can't possibly give work, money to a work on the basis of trusting the artist or trusting that the project, despite what we don't know about it yet, is just is worth pursuing
0: and given these difficulties and that we're living in trying times on top of that i'm wondering how you stay creatively energized and and how you come up with ideas and, and flesh them out you know what does that process look like for you
1: Sure. I mean, and I'm not always energized. (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a real struggle. And I feel like that's part of why I feel like we should all allow for and be more honest about failure. I think failure Mm. is a necessary part of doing this work. And I, I I personally would love to see a panel at a film festival where, where documentary artists talk about projects that have failed. Mm because there's this pretense that nothing fails right and that anyone who's making interesting work or work that succeeds has always done so has the confidence to always do so and is um that sort of pressure to be productive does a disservice to all of us and especially people who who again are already marginalized in lots of ways and prone to self-criticism so i'll just say you know i'm i'm as prone to all of that (laughs) despair and self-criticism and Non-productivity as anyone else. But I, I'm, I mean, I am a person who pretty fundamentally is both curious about and pretty alienated (laughs) by my place on this planet. Mm -hmm. Um, And those both those things are motivating I think especially now, I mean, I've I've had like a lot of people a really hard time during this pandemic, in part because not just because of all the kinds of destruction and suffering that are going on all around, but to be trapped in one's one's home and one's small space and to be disconnected from from everyone and to have to to suffer from the indignities of, of living in a world that doesn't seem terribly good for most people while feeling trapped and unable to do anything about it. Um, it's pretty tough. But it's also it's also for me always very motivating. And I, I stay motivated by connecting with and having relationships with people who are doing interesting work who, who, who don't I mean, I describe the people that I'm most attracted to in the world as the people who can't tolerate things as they are. And so how they express that intolerance, you know, varies. Some of them express that intolerance through activism. Sometimes they express that intolerance through artwork. But in one way or another, there are people that feel like, no, things are not okay. And I have to do something with my feelings that things are not okay. And, And that makes me feel less alone and also very inspired. And then I, you know, I love to read and I love to listen to music and, you know, much more I wasn't, re- I was never really a cinephile, didn't watch a lot of films growing up, but I, the influence of both music and, and literature in my life have been immeasurable. And that's, yeah, that's really useful for me as a, as a filmmaker. I get a lot of my ideas just through things that I'm reading and questions that I'm asking and also walks that I'm taking while listening to music and, and just trying to be really critically present in the world. Um, you know, I just made a really short film, like really short three minutes, uh, at the pest of a local programmer who was asking, asking local filmmakers here in Toronto in Canada to make quarantine films. And at first I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to make a quarantine film. Like I don't really want to make a a film about my living room or my, my toddler or whatever else. But, you know, I had been just noticing, for example, that, um, that even among friends since the, the pandemic hit there was an increased, there was sort of increased tendency to reprimand people for perceived violations of the sort of social codes, and a lot of, you know, tabling on people's neighbors, mm-hmm. calling these snitch lines that, that people are, that a lot of states have set up, sometimes calling the actual cops. Mm-hmm. And so I made a short film about, about that, the sort of cop, the kind of impulse to be a cop mm-hmm. in moments of fear, um, which of course, connects to my own interest in criminal justice and prison abolition generally, but it's also really just motivated by something that I was observing from my couch Mm -hmm. um, while under quarantine during the pandemic. So that's how a lot of my ideas come about, is I just, I read a lot, I read widely, but I also try and pay a lot of attention to things that I find curious or strange or feel like they'll take some work to, to figure out. I mean, most, most of the time I'm like, I don't know how to make something. (laughs) I don't know how to execute this idea. I don't know if like what I make will be any good, but I know what I'm interested in and my interests involve and are organic and are true. And again, I can't ever be sure that they'll be interesting to other people, but they are authentic to me.
0: And I'm wondering if you have an audience and a distribution plan in mind when you're making the thing or, you know, it's the making of the thing that's the reward in itself and if on top of that it gets released into the world, you know, that's a bonus.
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I, I, My answer is sort of both yes and no to all those questions. Mm -hmm. Like, I I don't have an audience in mind, but I hope for an audience. Mm. And I don't... That audience doesn't need to be huge. I mean, that audience is in some ways the audience of me when I found artworks that have affected me or it's an audience of people in the world real or imagined whose opinions I think highly of, or, or lonely teenagers. Like sometimes I think my, my audience, (laughs) like a lonely teenager who just like doesn't just is desperate to feel understood or less alone in the world. And I, again, I don't need, I'm not, I actually find, like, the platforms for mass distribution really alienating. Like, I find mm-hmm. film festivals a lot more rewarding, for example, than, than broadcast, because broadcast is so invisible. You, you put something out, and then you, you get a report three months later that said, you know, this many hundreds of thousands of people watched your yeah. thing, and you think, okay, I don't really even know what that mm-hmm. means. So I'm not really ter- motivated by the idea of, like, massive numbers of people, but I am, I find it... It's it's much more than just a bonus to know that I've made something that has lived outside of me and that has a new life because it's been received and lives in the imagination of someone else. And to be able to be present for that, you know, at at a movie theater or in a classroom or at a film festival where someone is describing what they thought or felt or considered as a result of this art object I put in the world is it's just it's more than rewarding. I mean, it's it's like a an an immense privilege it's Mm. it's it's overwhelming I I mean I can't even I can't even really grasp it it, how how remarkable it is to um have the opportunity to to make something that can can then live in someone else's imaginary but also that one one can never know I mean I don't make anything or I haven't yet made anything where I knew it was going to reach an audience Um, I had to just make something and then submit to film festivals like everyone else. Mm. And so it also needs to be an experience that's been rewarding to me just through the process of making it. And I think that that's why I don't think I'd even have the capacity to make a film about like, you know, a hot topic or a topic that's just like, Oh, I think that this is going to make it succeed. I'm not terribly interested in it, but I think it's, it's going to be like a Sundance hit. So I'm going to make the film because there's always the chance that it won't work and also I I just couldn't stand to make anything if I found the process boring Mm. Um, and for me in order to be interested I have to be I have to be delighted and surprised and 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 feel like there's something for me to to learn or to have to grapple with that's really hard it's part of the making of it
0: and I'm wondering if you have anything that you consider to be the the biggest learning curve of your career
1: Early on in my career, learning that there was a real difference between what it takes to have a career Mm -hmm. in documentary versus what it takes to make a documentary, the distinctions between those things, that was a huge learning curve. And it was a big part of why I went and did a PhD is that I, I was like, oh, I knew I wanted to become a filmmaker. I knew I would love making films. And then I made a film and realized that figuring out how to get funding and distribution is a totally different set of questions. And so that, and I found that really disillusioning mm-hmm. and I needed to kind of lick my wounds afterwards. So that, that was it. I also think in more recent years, I've learned so much about all the sort of different registers of rejection that get built mm-hmm. into making a film and how to take them with a grain of salt. I mean, I think I used to, and I think a lot of people still do make a film, get rejected from a film festival and then think, oh my God, I've just made, a piece of shit. I guess I'm I'm no good because they I got rejected, and mm-hmm. so I've I've learned. I mean, unfortunately, there's something cynical about learning this, but I, I feel like I've learned a lot about the, the different kinds of issues and conflicting agendas that go into deciding on on film programs, deciding on funding, deciding on all these sort of on all these different aspects of uh, that go into producing a film and getting it into the world. Mm-hmm. But as a result, I've also learned much more than I used to know how How important it is to find people that you trust, to who speak the language of the work that you're trying to make, who get it, and how invaluable those collaborations are. And I feel really lucky now to know a sort of roster of film filmmakers and programmers and critics and, and producers who are excited about similar things. Uh, as I am and who who make work that I find really spectacular or or write about work in ways that are really interesting and and I feel like having keeping those people close and thinking of those people as part of my audience is a really useful way to mitigate what's really hard about going through the kind of conventional channels of funding and production and distribution Mm -hmm.
0: I guess yeah, it's like remembering that the industry is made up of people, and that we're all individuals, and we kind of think that these funding bodies and these organisations are arbiters of taste, but they're still
1: no, made up of people and, and that have
0: subjective tastes.
1: They're not even arbiters of taste, but you know, funding agencies, especially so many of them, are just random people. Mm-hmm. Like there's no meritocracy where. If you've got the better your taste is, the more likelier you are to be in a position to fund films. It's quite the opposite, right? Funders mm. are the people with money, <laughs> mm. um, so that's the reason that they're in positions of making. You know, at least in the sort of NGO model, the mm. foundation model. So I think that that yeah, a realist view onto how these institutions work can be really liberating because it frees one's ego from from being kind of affected from the kind of vicissitudes of of funding and, um, and other kinds of decision-making. Yeah. And in the meantime, find solace in the, in the letter out of the blue from someone who's seen a mm-hmm. film that I've made and has been affected by it in some way.
0: And finally, I'd like to know if there's a film by a woman director that you consider to be an undervalued gem and that you'd like to spotlight.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I should have prepared for this question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, there's really a lot of, female filmmakers that I, that I adore. And, and you know what, since you're in England, I'll talk about a filmmaker that maybe more Americans know, but she's okay. still, you know, by no means mainstream. But I, I learned recently, she'd never really had a full retrospective in of her work in, um, in the UK. And that's the contemporary American filmmaker, Deborah Stratman. Oh. Um, his work. I really love works, you know, in what I'd call, nonfiction uh Mm. (laughs) media video film and 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 artwork and yeah I think people should seek out her films she's still making films and has you know has over 20 or 30 films that she's made and that you can find relatively easily
0: just quickly I kind of want to know is that your sort of definition of success in that you get a, a long career where you can kind of continue making films for for that breadth of time
1: yeah, I think that's it. I want to continue making work, and I want to I want to make work without comp- compromising myself. I think mm. success will mean that I get to continue to make work and to try new things uh, and take new chances in the work that I make. I mean, I think part of success. I don't know if it's part of su- success. I think ideally, success should include not worrying of not having the ongoing stress of making a living. Mm. That doesn't have to mean being rich, but it just it, it just would be nice to feel like you could make work that feels true in a way that's sustainable and that doesn't require um, that sort of compromise of having to work a second job or a set of jobs. But mainly success means getting to work, make new work, try out new ideas, and not compromise politically or aesthetically in what I'm, I'm doing.
0: That is the dream. Brett, thank you so much. This has been a really enriching conversation. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Nicole. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you for all your questions.
0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can listen to the entire archive on iTunes, Spotify and Acast and you can let me know what you think by leaving a review or tweeting me at Stone Cold Fox. In the meantime,
1: have a great week.